Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, podcasts shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 13, Feed the People. This episode is going to be the first of a two-parter, although while they're connected in some ways, they could not be further apart, geographically anyway. More on that later. Part of what led me to creating this podcast was to talk about some of the amazing scientific advances that occurred in the 19th century. Combine these with the artistic endeavours and amazing explorations that happened during this century and you've got a lot of great material to make a podcast with. Now, the early decades of the 1800s had the United Kingdom in conflict with the French and what we now know as the Napoleonic Wars. Part of Napoleon's plan was to isolate the United Kingdom economically from the rest of Europe. Combine this with the ongoing expenses of military encounters and you have the English expending a huge proportion of their finances on everything but advancing their society. Wages were terrible, the economy was struggling and there was massive debt owed to creditors around the world. But the Victorian era is well known for advances in science and artistic areas as well as exploring large parts of the world in epic expeditions. So what changed? Firstly, our very own Victorian era James Kirk, that we know as Horatio Nelson, ensured the English dominance of the seas at the Battle of Trafalgar. Then Napoleon copped a beatdown at Waterloo by the Duke of Wellington and the threat of the French taking the United Kingdom receded. History has shown us that real cultural advancement only occurs during times of peace and economic prosperity. Think of the Renaissance and the massive fortunes of families such as the Medicis sunk into patronage for men like Leonardo da Vinci and Galileo Galilei. So now the United Kingdom was free of the conquering spectre of Napoleon Bonaparte. But what else do you need for cultural advancement? Like I said, funding. Lots and lots of money. Where did that money come from? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is what the next two podcasts are going to be about. I'm certainly no economic expert, and I'm sure there are many more factors involved in how the fiscal fortunes of the United Kingdom changed. But there are two events that I'm going to look at that I feel are critical to this boom period of the Victorian era. This week it's addressing one of the big questions. How do you improve your economy? After all, a better economy means money is moving around, jobs are being created, money is made, and insofar as the government is concerned, more taxes are being gathered. So, We're talking corn this week. Corn, I hear you ask? Bear with me. In the 1800s, corn was the generic term to cover all cereal grains, including wheat and barley. 
So when I say corn for the rest of the podcast, I'm covering all of these grains. And like any item sold within the kingdom, there were laws, trade restrictions, and of course, government tariffs associated with it. Sure, we all understand that the government wants their piece of the pie, but it's only bread really, so it's not that big a deal, right? For those of you that have listened to my Pan Am episode, you might remember just how important bread was in the daily diet of the time. A family of six ate 55 pounds or 25 kilos of bread a week. That's around about 31 loaves. These days, many of us don't eat bread or only certain types, but in a day-to-day manner, bread isn't a critical element for our diets. To the people, though, of the Victorian era, it very much was. Think of it as an essential service and then some, because the idiom that bread is the staff of life was not an idiom back then. It was a statement of fact. What were known as the Corn Laws were a range of tariffs, import duties and trade restrictions imposed on imported grains. These various charges were imposed to ensure that the fees on importing grain were so high that there was no point in even thinking of doing so. Now, on one hand, you can agree with this. It means that the people who grow the grain locally have their business protected, and as we're told all the time, it's better to buy local than have your money go overseas. But like everything, there's two sides to this. No, it's not an economics podcast. I'm all for buying local and I encourage you to do the same. But this was a product that was, as I said, an essential, a critical part of everyday life. And because of all these taxes, the price of corn was artificially inflated. That is, it was more expensive than it would have been if it had been on an open or free trade market. And so the most important item in your food and your diet was more expensive than it should have been. In 1837, when Queen Victoria came to power, a full quarter of your income went on paying for bread alone. So think of what you earn every week. Now take a quarter of that and spend it just on bread, because that's pretty much all you got to eat most of the time anyway. And with so much of your income being spent on a basic need such as this, you had so much less of what was called, or is called, disposable income. The effect of having that smaller disposable income meant that you were less likely to spend money on non-essential items. You wouldn't buy that material for the pants that you kind of needed. You wouldn't spend money on those new plates that you actually needed. That latest hat, coat, pocket watch that you like, that's not happening. So other businesses had less sales and therefore less income. They struggled, they didn't buy extra materials from their suppliers, and importantly, they didn't employ extra staff. And the effect flows on. If the money isn't moving around, everyone struggles. And these were laws that have been in place since the 1600s. Price control was firmly entrenched and then increased even more in 1815. Why 1815? Well, it was around that time it was the end of what were known as the Napoleonic Wars. 
trade increased and corn prices decreased. So the corn laws were passed to keep the price high. Protecting the makers of the most essential food in the kingdom was important, but it came at a terrible cost. Because when there were shortages of corn, no one could afford to buy the corn from overseas. And people starved, not starved going hungry, they starved and died. I'm sure most of us have heard of the Irish potato famine that began in 1845 and it continued until 1849, four years. Four long years. It's estimated that in Ireland alone, two million people died in this time. Their population had only been eight million. By 1849, it was just six. Imagine a quarter of your population dead, people you know, towns you lived in, all experiencing such catastrophic loss. I'll cover the famine more at another time in a, another podcast, but during this time, many in the United Kingdom, especially in long-suffering Ireland, lost their major source of food. And when I say major, I really mean it. You would have eaten potatoes for morning, noon and night. That's all gone. So all you can rely on is trying to survive on bread. It wasn't a case of hang on and we'll get through this. It's only missing a few meals. This was years of suffering. And because of the pricing and the corn laws, no one could afford to make something as simple as bread to help save lives. And then along came Sir Robert Peel. Now Peel was helped in passing this change by Richard Cobden, a man often referred to as a radical and liberal, was voted in at the time that Peel won his election to office and became Prime Minister. Cobden said the following when describing the benefits to removing the Corn Laws. And so you get his full context, the condition of England question he refers to just means the working class. Quote, First, it would guarantee the prosperity of the manufacturer by affording him outlets for his products. Second, it would relieve the condition of England question by cheapening the price of food and ensuring more regular employment. Third, it would make English agriculture more efficient by stimulating demand for its products in urban and industrial areas. Fourth, it would introduce through mutually advantageous international trade, a new era of international fellowship and peace. The only barrier to these four beneficent solutions was the ignorant self-interest of the landlords. The bread-taxing oligarchy, unprincipled, unfeeling, rapacious and plundering. Sometimes you really have to love how people can use the English language, but there was objection to the repeal of these laws. Of course there was. 
because repealing the corn laws would mean the end of high pricing of bread. It would mean the cost of living would be less. Accordingly, that means that employers could lower people's wages and thus maximise their profits. This was a genuine concern of people who felt that they were defending the working classes. Karl Marx, the German philosopher who was living in England at the time and during this era wrote his seminal work, The Communist Manifesto, was one of these people. He advocated that instead of removing the corn laws, they should rather double the size of each loaf, as well as reducing the working day to just 10 hours. But during their struggle to repeal the Corn Laws, Sir Robert Peel laid all of his political cards on the table. In December 1845, he announced that in following January, he would recall Parliament from their break in an attempt to have the laws repealed. Such was the opposition to this repeal attempt that Sir Robert actually resigned as Prime Minister, believing he couldn't get the policy through. Can you imagine a politician today doing something like that? Resigning voluntarily, on principle? <laughs> I know, I'll never see it happen. Queen Victoria then asked Lord John Russell, another conservative like Peel, to form a government. Lord John even asked Richard Cobden to join his government, but Cobden refused, preferring to work outside the system than from within. Now, I'm not an economics podcast, and I'm certainly not a political podcast. So, abbreviating what occurred, Russell was unable to form a government, and so by the end of December, Sir Robert Peel was Prime Minister again. And as 1846 began, England was starving, and Ireland was dying. But by May, Sir Robert Peel, the man who, amongst his many achievements, including being Prime Minister of the United Kingdom twice, who created the Metropolitan Police Force, which gave them the nickname Peelers, became the man in who defiance of his own Conservative Party managed to force through the repeal of the Corn Laws. Well done, sir. Well done. But it came at personal cost. As the repeal passed through the Upper House of Parliament, Peel was again forced to resign in June of 1846. In his resignation speech, he unequivocally gave credit for the repeal to Richard Cobden. Now, while I believe that Sir Robert did the right thing, we can to some degree question his reasons. Peel was a conservative, a man that believed in the established order of society. He didn't want change. He wanted things to stay the same, and so did his political party. So why then promote a policy that ultimately ended in his political demise? In 1994, author Michael Lustig wrote that he believed Peel had done this because he wanted to maintain the institution of aristocratic government with the foresight to see that maintaining the Corn Laws would cause unacceptable levels of unrest in the populace, Peel chose as to what he saw as the lesser evil and forced the repeal to pass. As a counter to this argument, Dartmouth College economic historian Douglas Irwin believed that Peel had become convinced 
that the protectionism of maintaining the laws was no longer required and that free trade better served the people. Regardless of whatever his reasoning was, Peel's ability to repeal these corn laws meant that the price of corn, including all those other grains, dropped a lot. Corn was measured and market priced in quarters. A quarter was eight bushels or about eight dry gallons. In 1828, this was 80 shillings a quarter. But once the laws were repealed in 1846, the price dropped to around 56 shillings a quarter. So you can see what a massive saving that was. The effect of this repeal was twofold. It meant that people got to eat. Most importantly, the suffering Irish population got some sort of food to begin to relieve the horrific famine that they had been suffering through. But because grain from overseas was suddenly so much cheaper, much of the agricultural community throughout England was economically forced off the land. This was a huge change in demographics in the kingdom. This had the long-term effect over the century as the working-class people sought employment in the cities. Many also emigrated. Think of the influx of the Irish population to America. This was during these times. But those still in the United Kingdom found their food requirements were so much cheaper. People now had more disposable income, and that meant that they were spending in the markets of the non-essential items. Money flowed, and jobs were being created. Those former farmers became clothes makers, messengers, coach drivers, servants, cooks, labourers, and any of the other jobs that were suddenly mushrooming up because people were able to spend their money on items other than just putting bread on the table. And when money flows, your economy swells. Think of having had to spend a quarter of your salary on that bread every week. Now, suddenly you have a lot more to spend. Those products that you decide to buy, well, all those people need to make them. And the Industrial Revolution was starting, so many jobs were being created. And you're spending like never before. Money is moving, the jobs are being created, and this alone had a huge effect on the United Kingdom throughout the second half of the 19th century. Creating free trade in the various forms of corn meant that the economy was bolstered, changes in employment were happening, and the changes in society would flow throughout the era. That is why I believe that this was one of the biggest economic changes in the Victorian era, People were able to eat, and they had that higher disposable income. But as always, the government needs their money. Regardless of having an economy that was moving forward again, the 1800s was still a time of wars, Napoleonic and otherwise, as well as existing debt that comes with every government. No doubt many of us have heard of how our countries have their own debt, and how much it is, and so on from there. Seems like our international status is based on just how much we owe to overseas lenders. But what if you managed to pay that off? Imagine you were fully in charge and you were fully paid up. Sometimes it happens. And that will be the next episode. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me 
at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at VicGasLamp and my Instagram account is VictorianGasLamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks. So keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>